The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. This morning's scripture reading comes from Esther chapter 2, verses 1 to 18. Please stand in reverence for the reading and hearing of God's word. After these things... When the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, let their cosmetics be given, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem, among the captives carried away from Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadashah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her, as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susha, the citadel, in the custody of Hegei, Esther was, was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hegei, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointment for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she was desired, she desired to take with her from the heron to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgas, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Hegei, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the woman, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus, 
into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tabeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Dean. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word, we do so with great humility, knowing that it is your perfect infallible word given to us, breathed by you. And so, Father, we ask that now you would take your word and set it upon our hearts, our consciences, our very souls, and that we would learn from you today, and that we would go from here applying to our lives the truths that we see given to us here in your word. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I grew up in a home that loved to read stories. We would read them in the evenings around the table. We'd read them on trips as we were, we were a camping family and not a hotel motel family. And so we'd sit around the fire around all over the country and read stories of the Narnia tales or of the great epics of, of Frodo and of the Middle Earth and all the pictures of stories from Beowulf to, to just glorious things that captured the imagination. We are in and studying a great story, but unlike those that I just referenced, this is a true story. This isn't fiction. This is a true story, a historic narrative of a young woman named Esther, her, her cousin Mordecai, King Xerxes, all historic figures living in a time in the ancient Near East, and we're watching unfold within this story God's incredible hand moving to and fro. Esther chapter 2 is the Bible's Cinderella story, as you would. It's a romantic drama that every Disney princess would be proud of and aspire to. It features the beauty pageant in which the church girl wins the day and impresses everyone with her winning smile. What an example Esther is for little girls everywhere. Sadly, that's how it's been preached too often. It is one of the worst abuses of Scripture to preach this story that way. It's not about moralistic integrity. It is actually a story overflowing, not overflowing with romance, but is a story full of moral ambiguity and of spiritual compromise. Esther 2 is an offering to us an example to not to follow per se, at least at this point in her life. It's not an exciting episode of the Persian virgin version of The Bachelor, where the Bachelor King comes and invites all the pretty girls in, and he takes them to uh, wonderful places in his kingdom and looks at all the heights and the glories of these things. No, it is a dark, 
and it is an uncomfortable tale of abduction. It is a tale even of abuse. I'm going to use language today, parents, just as a disclaimer for your little ones to know. I will, I will be as careful as I can, but this is an adult tale. This is a tale that invites us into places of brokenness, into places of darkness. It is sinister in its nature in the midst of these things. But even in the midst of all of these moral ambiguities, all of these shocking abuses that seem to follow and cover Esther's steps, we're invited into this story to trace God's footsteps to see the hand of the Lord in the midst of it. You see, Esther 2 does not flinch from giving to us the ugly fact of life in ancient Persia where people were treated as commodities, where the slogan that our bodies are our own and we have the choices to do with them what we want would never have been accepted in the empire or in that day, that men nor women had any power over who they were. They were commodities within a powerful king's world. It's no story, no fairy tale story. It's a poor Jewish girl who is taken, who is proped and prodded and given to a king to fulfill his sexual appetite and then to be objectified for all to see. It is not a sweet story. There is no escapism in the midst of it. It is real life. Now, there is a beauty just in that introduction of understanding Esther 2 that way, of having the book of Esther put into our scriptures is so incredibly important because, you see, the Lord is not confounded when the unthinkable happens. The Lord is not confounded when the unthinkable happens. David Strain, the pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, has a wonderful commentary on this, and he says this, God is not silent when tragedy and sorrow and sin break in on us and leave us broken. The prison of silence that can hold victims enslaved to shame and confusion is or can at least begin to be unlocked by passages like this one where the dark things that we are unable to share with others are named here. They are faced here by the God of wisdom and love. He has a word for the abused and for the abuser. He has something to say to the naive and to the cynical. His gospel is a real-world gospel that works in the darkest realities of our lives. Esther 2, as bleak as it is, offers to us unspeakable love. Friends, that should be an encouragement to you today because I don't know your stories, but I know all of our stories have as part of it, maybe only a paragraph, maybe a page, maybe an entire chapter, are places of darkness, of abuse, places of fallenness, places of spiritual compromise, places of moral ambiguity, places where we look back and where shame, the, that first issue of the fall, 
When Adam and Eve ate of the fruit and they looked at each other and they felt shame, that powerful thing has come in and it takes hold within our lives and it has such incredible sway within our lives. But the beauty of this story and of Scripture itself is it invites you in to deal with those places. God doesn't flinch at your story, friends. I want you to hear that. I was talking to a young woman recently who shared with a date one time a dark place in her own story. And he looked and he pulled back and he couldn't deal with that sort of brokenness. Friends, you don't have a God like that. You have a God who leans into your brokenness. You have a God who leans into the mess and the confusion of all of this. And so here we are, and here's how I'm going to set up the sermon today for you. If you're looking for an outline, it will come at the very end. Here's how the outline's going to look. Introduction. Narrative explanation. Three application points to pull out of it. Now, my expectation and my hope is why we talk about the narrative and we walk through this story and we look at the characters and we look at the scene and we unpack it and we go through it, that you'll, you'll see some things that should help you and little nuggets maybe to take away. But this is a historic narrative. It's a story. So let's enter into the story. You see, this story opens three years after we closed chapter one. Chapter 1 was the introduction of King Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, the Persian Medan emperor of the day, the most powerful man in all of the world. He had gathered all of the leaders of his known world, at least of his known world, at that time to have a 180-day drunken feast. They partied and they celebrated and they did all of these things, and then he had seven extra days tied on to the end of it that he was coming to them to procure from them most likely their support for a war campaign that he was planning. And in the middle of the drunken feast, he called for his wife, his queen Vashti, and she refused to come because she knew that he was hanging out with all his drunk buddies and all he wanted her to do was to stand in front of her, maybe. Or it was because she herself was too drunk and couldn't come. Maybe she just didn't feel good. We don't know why she didn't come, but she didn't come. And the king got so upset that he cast her out of his presence forever, an edict that could never be uh, repealed. And so now, three years later, we open in chapter 2. Now, a lot has happened in those three years. You see, Xerxes' father was a gentleman, loosely using that word, a man, let's say that, called Darius the Great. Darius the Great established the kingdom, and Darius defeated everybody that he fought except the people of Athens and of Sparta at the Battle of Marathon. And so now his son, Xerxes, is emperor, and he's decided to go and to do what his father could not do and to avenge his father's loss uh, there in Greece. And so he goes, and it's during these three years that he campaigns to take over Greece, to take over Athens and to take over Sparta and what happens is that he loses again like his father but this time he lost all of Europe he lost everything that he had gained previously in the Mediterranean rim and so we enter the scene 
uh, with another celebration, I guess, maybe a party, but this time it was a pity party. It was the great emperor back home licking his wounds, and in a moment of maybe he was feeling nostalgic, it said, verse 1, after these things, when the anger of King Asuherus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. The word remembered is a Hebrew word that's often used to remember fondly of someone. So here is the king, three years removed from his drunken, impetuous, knee-jerk reaction, and he's feeling a little bad about it. Maybe he's even feeling a little remorse because he knows that he made a decree and within The kingdom, a decree, can never be taken back once it's been decreed and sealed with his signet. Chapter 2, verse 19, or chapter 8, 8. So you see him sitting there. So what's he to do? Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. Let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under custody of Haggai, Haggai uh, the king's unit, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given, etc. And he had this plan given to him by his council, and it pleased the king, and so he did it. An empire-wide search was now uh, going on for a new queen. A new queen, by the way, who at the end of chapter 1 said, we can find a better, a better queen than Vashti. Now, by better, what they meant was a queen who would toe the line, a queen who would never say no, a, a queen who would fully be committed uh, to the king, who would lose her personhood fully within the office that she carried. And the prerequisites for and the qualifications for this young woman to become queen had to be an Ivy League education, 10 years of good experience in a Fortune 100 company, that she had to be published, she had to have an impeccable uh, resume of moral integrity and of business decisions. No, she needed to be young, unmarried, and extraordinarily beautiful. And you look and you go, who in the world came up with that criteria? Interesting word right there. It says, he talked to his young men. Young men. Not to his elders. Not to the wise men of Persia of the day. But to his young men. Why is it included in there? I think it's included in there to remind us that wisdom most often doesn't reside in youth. Wisdom resides with a bit of age. Now, I'm not saying this across the board, that there's no wisdom at all in the teen man or the 20-something-year-old man. There is, of course. But generally, when we look at youth, we don't say what a wise person that is. My picture of this is that here is King Ahasuerus, who comes and he looks around and he goes, Hey, Fraternity brothers. Hey, frat boys. Hey, you 20-something-year-old young men. What should I do? And as you're sitting in the beta-beta dum-dum house at whatever university of Persia, and they gather around and they say, what could help the king? Oh, I know. Get him a bunch of naked virgins and get them prepped for a year, a year of spa treatments 
for them to come into his presence one night for him to have a trial run. And you know what the king said? It was pleasing to him. Well, duh. We said last week that we should be able to laugh at the established places of authority in the world. If this isn't a laugh of satire at men in general who are at least cast here as shallow and predatory, but of a kingdom that looks only on the outside, what do you have for me? What can you give me? How do you look? It sounds an awful lot like a kingdom that we serve in today, in our own culture. And it pleased the king. Maybe he felt remorse. But you see, those pangs of remorse that he was feeling for Vashti, he had nowhere to go with that. He went back to an old strategy for the unrenewed heart or for the heart of flesh. And that strategy, incapable of true repentance, of just owning what he did wrong, that that is simply to avoid guilt, to medicate, as it were. That he can ignore his guilt and he can hide his guilt beneath a blanket of indulgence, but he can never really remove it. And friends, we know as Christians that the only place that our guilt can be placated is at a cross, not in a bedroom. But he went right back. And so that's the scene that's set, and I'm going to have to step on the gas a little bit here because there's lots of incredible things that are happening. And the scene ends there uh, with this now thing that's happening in all of the kingdom, and women are being taken, girls are being taken from their homes all over the kingdom and brought there uh, to Susa. And we're introduced to a little family now of Mordecai and of his cousin, his uncle's daughter, and that it is a picture of a Jewish family, one that doesn't have the opulent wealth. Yes, they were in a place of privilege because they were in Susa in the citadel and that Mordecai was most likely an official somewhere uh, in the government. And we're there and we're looking at this group now, this family who had been deported under Nebuchadnezzar, who had been there in, for a hundred years or more, and they're sitting, and all they know is that they are exiles in a foreign land. And we see within this Mordecai, and we see Esther here. And we've already been introduced to them, but I'll quickly say this about Mordecai. Mordecai identified himself this way. He was an exile. It says that he was a Jew, but look how he's described in verses 5 and 6, literally in the Hebrew. There was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, who had been exiled from Jerusalem, among the exiles who were exiled uh, with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had exiled. So what do you think he identified as? An exile. All he really knew about himself and his family was they weren't from there. They were exiled. And we know that in his name, he was Mordecai the Jew. And so he lived, as it were, a Jewish life. We don't know if he was kosher. We don't know if he held to the ceremonial law. We don't know if he was simply, uh, by, by culture, Jewish. Many people, I remember sitting with a young lady many years ago at Rhodes University, and I said, well, would you like to come to church with us? And she said, well, I'm Catholic. And I said, oh, whether well, you go to Mass. No, I don't go to Mass. 
And I said, well, do you go to confession? She goes, no, I don't go to confession. I said, do you do your Hail Marys? She goes, no, I don't do my Hail Marys. I said, do you do our Our Fathers? She goes, no, I don't do that. I said, do you do anything in the Catholic Church? She goes, no. I said, then how are you Catholic? She goes, I'm Catholic. I wonder if he was that way. Not a practicing Jew, but a Jew by culture, identified that way. But he was also Mordecai, an official in the Persian government, known as servant of Marduk, Marduk being the Babylonian god. A man with two identities, a man with a foot in two worlds, two kingdoms. And then there's Esther, who is first introduced to us as Hadassah, which means myrtle. It is her Hebrew name. But we also know her as Esther, which means star, which means most likely out of a derivative from Ishtar, uh, the Babylonian Syrian Persian goddess. And so you have Mordecai and you have uh, Esther, who we find within that duality of saying, I'm in this world, I'm culturally Jewish, but I am fully Persian. That we didn't go back to Jerusalem when we were given the opportunity. We decided to stay because, you know what, it's kind of nice here. Things are going pretty well here. Maybe they even rationalized in their heads, we can have more impact for the kingdom by staying here and going just along under the surface than we would if we went back to Jerusalem. Uh, Who would want to go back to that backwater town anyway? No walls, no temple. It's pretty good here. We're okay here. So here she was, orphaned and living there, a girl within two worlds, a man within two worlds. Can you relate? at all, of being a covenant child of a king. That's what we are as Christians, as the Jews were, called to follow that king, but planted, exiled, as it were. We're not home yet. This isn't our kingdom. This isn't our home. We're sojourners and exiles here for a season that we live here afoot in two kingdoms, living in between two worlds. We relate to Esther and Mordecai in this way. Esther's life began unfold when one day there was a knock on a door. She was just fine as an orphan girl living with Mordecai, having a pretty decent life, I imagine. And the knock came on the door, and it said, you have to now go to the emperor's house. Now she had to make a choice. Am I going to stand in this kingdom, or am I just going to assimilate into the other one? Am I going to, as it were, be defined by Babylon, be defined, excuse me, by Persia, or am I going to be defined by heaven? Am I going to be identified in that? We have to face the same dilemma, that those two worlds try to define us, and we as followers of Christ have to determine which one will actually be the one to define and which one will we identify with. For Esther, these two worlds collided, that she was taken I can imagine it had to be an emotional day. It says that Mordecai kept coming over to the harem during that year of her imprisonment, as it were, knowing that he would never see her again, by the way. Every girl that was taken, if they weren't chosen by the king, she didn't get to go home. You can imagine what it was like for parents to say goodbye to their daughters of all races and of all spiritual backgrounds and of religious and political backgrounds but to say to their young daughter, go. 
And Mordecai, being a good father figure, looked at his daughter. And he said, if you want to make it, be quiet about your faith. Keep your head down. Don't make any ripples. Friends, by the way, that was not an incredibly strategic plan for later. We know the rest of the story, and we try to read it back in. He was making a decision that said, your Jewishness is not as important as your life. Your faith is not as important as your long standing here. I don't want to lose you. Go there. And what we see with Esther is she was a great and quick study. She didn't learn simply how to survive. She learned how to thrive and to move forward. It says within chapter 2 that she didn't merely find favor with Hege's, in Hege's sight. That's a more passive idiom. It says that she won favor in his sight. That's an idiom that's not used very often. But it meant this. She was strategic. She knew how to move through the harem. She was smart and she was savvy and she understood this. Being a part of a harem, though probably a decent life for a lot of these young women who were taken from poverty and brought in and now they were going to have food and they were going to have shelter and they were going to have safety, that it was probably a good life. She said, I don't want to be down at the bottom rung of this. I want to get up towards the front. And she knew how. And it says that she won favor with everyone around her. She worked for her promotion in the house of women, fitting into the agenda that the empire had set for her. She was a perfectly compliant child in the kingdom. She charmed the king when it was her night, and she was the new queen. Make no mistake, by the way, it wasn't a night where they sat around and they... They read books together, and they wondered to see if maybe they had the same movie interests, that maybe they took the Enneagram to see if they were compatible for life. It was an emperor taking advantage and stealing by sexual overtone, by sexual invasion, the virginity of a young woman, plain and simple. And if he loved her, by the way, not love in the way that we understand it. But if she pleased him and satisfied his urges, he would call her back by name. And he did. Esther, in the midst of this, was standing there with a choice that she had to make. It's a choice that all of us had to make. Esther was willing to make compromising choices all the way along. That's what we learn in chapter 2 about Esther. That she never stood up. If you compare her, and we don't have time to fully do it, but if you compare her to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they stood up and they said, no, our Jewishness, our faith is going to shine out first. Now, it benefited them, at least initially, that they got to eat whatever they wanted to eat. But then they faced a lion's den, and a furnace. Esther had that opportunity, and she chose not to take it. Now, it didn't mean that the king wouldn't force himself on her, that she was, and I want you to hear this, she was a true victim of sexual assault and abuse in this story. But she decided not to have a voice in the midst of it to say no. That voice had, had been basically taken away. Friends, 
I want you to hear this for us today. There's always opportunity to stand up. Now, for some of us, it may end up like Daniel, where we get to eat what we want to get. For others of us, it may end up like Daniel, where we get thrown in a lion's den, and you get out of the lion's den. For others, it may be a gallow. For others, it may be that you experience the very worst of the worst. But make no mistake, there's always opportunity for us who are followers of Jesus Christ, living in his kingdom, citizens of that kingdom, living currently in this kingdom, to stand for his kingdom. And what I find fascinating is that just like Esther, who was willing to subjugate herself to a year of all of those things that happened to her body and to her personhood, to go and to suffer, as it were, in order to gain what she said she wanted to have, we look at that and go, how could she do that? Friends, any of you join a fraternity? Oh, pledge life is glorious, isn't it? Drink this, do that. Make yourself lose all personhood and dignity in order to be a brother, in order to have a couple of letters on your sweatshirt. Or maybe it's in your work. You're willing to suffer. You're willing to do whatever it takes in order to gain what you think that you have to have at the end of the day, the success, the money, all of that. We suffer. We give away. We intentionally say no to the things that may cause us not to get forward. So we suffer under and in our empire because we say what the empire is offering is beneficial to us. Therefore, we'll suffer. But isn't it fascinating? At the very, in the very same breath, the true king, the true emperor says, hey, would you suffer for me? Oh, now you're asking too much. What do you mean? And we go, I don't like suffering. No, the answer is yes, you do. We all have a theology of suffering. We have just basically said, I'm, I'm more willing to suffer for this kingdom in this world than I am for the true kingdom in the world to come. Because if I suffer for Christ... I may not get the deal. I may not, get the, I may not be the brother or the sister. I may not get married. I may not get this thing. I may not get that thing. And we're unwilling to suffer for him. It's an interesting dynamic and tension in which we live. So this is the story in which we find ourselves. Esther won, by the way. She got to be queen, and there was a celebration and a crown. And like all good Persian kings, when things were going well, he let the people of the kingdom know that they were going well. Wouldn't that be nice? The government had a good year. You get a tax break. That's what happened here, at least. So what do we take from it? And I'll give you three things quickly as we wrap up. The first is to see this. God is sovereignly ruling his kingdom even when we don't see him. God is sovereignly ruling his kingdom God is sovereignly building his kingdom. He is shaping his kingdom even when we don't see him. One writer put it this way. Don't underestimate God. That's your first takeaway. Don't underestimate God. He is omnipotently present. He is present on every single page, every part of this story. His hand is hovering over everything that is happening here in the middle of it, though his name is never mentioned, that God is ruling in his kingdom sovereignly, that he is turning and using things in his kingdom, and it's the same in our lives. We live within a world of moral ambiguity, of spiritual compromise on a macro level and on a micro level within our own lives. 
And we don't often get to see, we don't discern how God is at work. We haven't developed that keen sense of moving. I'll tell you a, a quick story. I've told you this before, I think a few years ago. We lived in the mountains at a, at a house there. We were finishing our basement. We had limited funds, and we found a young man to do our basement for us. We went out of town. We got back. The basement wasn't getting done. We looked in the paper on Monday morning, and in the headline of our small town paper in Highlands and Cashers, uh, North Carolina, uh, was local contractor arrested for capital murder. It was John. He was our contractor. Well, he had tens of thousands of our dollars that we prepaid to him. Not wise. I get it. Don't tell me that. Got it. (laughs) And here we were wondering what was going on. And then I went to church, uh, and his guy he worked with, knew that I was a pastor, and so he came, broke into our house and into our barn and took all the tools that were left over there, including tools that were mine and all the things that were mine. And so now I'm out tens of thousands of dollars, and now I don't have any tools. I remember standing in my barn and just crying. Going, God, really? It's bad enough that we've got this now, and now I've got, now, Great. And so, of course, we called the sheriff. We went into the paper. Fast forward, I get a phone call that week from a woman who says, Hi, my name is so-and-so. I know who stole all of your stuff. And she gave me his name. She says, But more importantly, I want you to know that John's my son. And I saw your name in the paper. And I knew that maybe because you're a pastor, that you would go visit my son in prison and pray for him and share the gospel with him. And I went, Of course I would. And I went and I met with John on several occasions and talked to him and shared the gospel with him. And I don't know if John came to faith or not. I went to church a few weeks later and there were a bunch of our friends there. And several of these were big old mountain boys and they were kind of giddy. And that's not a good old mountain boy way of life, it's sort of giddy. And this big guy, John, was there and different John. And he opened up the back of his truck and they were all their friends and spouses and kids were standing around. They were kind of like, I'm like what in the world? And he opened, and they had bought us all new tools. Everything that had been stolen had been uh, brought back, and then a couple of other things. With, they were better. They were Husqvarna. They were steel. They were the best. I couldn't have ever afforded those things. And I got home, and I heard God so clearly. It was almost as if it was audible. Say, Bill, don't you see? I needed to get the stuff stolen so your name would get into the newspaper so John's mom would see it and she would call you and you would go to prison and share the good news of the gospel with John so that he wouldn't be eternally damned. You just couldn't see it in the middle of it. Some of you are going through things that are categorically harder than what we experienced. And by the way, another contractor came in and finished all the work with the little bit of money that we had left. God was like, I got you. Some of you are going through things and you can't see the hand of God at this moment, but I want you to hear this. It is moving. His hand is hovering over the depths and the deep of your life. Even though you can't see him, you can trust that he's there. We learned that in this story. We learn that in this story, God uses his enemies to accomplish his kingdom's work. We'll talk about this more later, so I'm not going to go into great depth here. But know that the scripture says that the kingdom of this world are like streams in the palm of God, and he turns them where to go. 
Xerxes thought that he knew what he was doing, and a bunch of dumb frat boys around him thought they knew what they were doing. And God was going, you have no idea what you're doing. What you're doing is sinful. It is manipulative. It is incredibly destructive and abusive. But I am going to use your sinful acts to put a woman in position who is going to save my people from other destruction. He used Xerxes. And so, folks, when we look and we wonder what's going to happen in November, and like I said, our country's about to go nuts this year. I would pray that this church doesn't go nuts, by the way. I don't care if the red, purple, blue, or brown sitting in the White House, as long as the one with snail-scarred hands and feet sitting on a throne, this is going to be fine. This country could crumble. But God is still going to move and direct in the middle of it. And too many of us are concerned about the White House and the kingdom and Zusa and all of that and unconcerned about these other things because we don't recognize and see that God moves all things. He uses even our enemies. And then here's the final thing. I want you to get this. God employs his weakest servants to build his incredible kingdom. God employs and he deploys his weakest servants to build his incredible kingdom. So don't underestimate God, don't overestimate the power of governments, and don't underestimate your kingdom's significance. That some of you look at Esther and go, I know just what she was going through. I have made moral compromises. I have made decisions. I have had moral ambiguity in my life, spiritual compromise. You may be in it today. You may be here today riddled with guilt and shame for what you did last night and what you're about to do tomorrow. But I want you to hear this. God powerfully used Esther with all of those marks, knowing them full well, and he can and will use you. He loves to use the broken things to shame the wise. And some of you are quite broken. You are bruised. When you hold up the picture of your life, it's, it looks like a child has been painting it with thumb and kindergarten paint. And God takes that messed up picture of your life and he turns it into beauty through his redemptive power. Now friends, with that, God is calling each of us to say, which kingdom are we in? Which kingdom are we in? And for the church, the invitation is to stand and to be accounted with whatever may happen. It may be a lion's den and it may be a furnace. But if we lose our life for the sake of the true king, it is worth it. Because we serve a king who is willing to set aside the temptations of this world and to go to a cross and say this, I have never, ever not stood for you. And I will keep standing, and I have won, and I will return, and I will take your story, and I will do great things with it. Friends, find me another philosophy. Find me another religion that says that about you. Bring me all of your poked, prodded, messed up, broken, sexually abused, uh, morally deficient, all of these things, all that. Bring them to me, and I'm going to use them to establish a kingdom that has no end. It's an invitation for you today. And we learn a lot about it here in Esther. Let's pray. God, thank you for this story. Man, we listen to Esther and we hear her tale and Mordecai, and we relate to them so well. We know heartache and brokenness. 
We know shame of making decisions. We know pain of abuse. We know all of these things. We sense them and feel them deep within us. And the evil one loves to, loves to come at that moment and send us into hiding in the bushes. And now we hear the voice of our God inviting us out into wide spaces, places where he covers our nakedness, not with our own works, but with the beautiful work of his son Christ, that he takes our shame and our mourning and he turns them into songs of joy and delight, songs of redemption and songs of hope. For there is a name above all names. And we look to that name today. And we bear it when we come and follow Christ. Christ is that name. Jesus our King. So we sing and we serve Him today. To Him be all glory and honor. Amen. Let's stand and sing and end together this morning.